HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my crew guests. My guest today is Zach Mangan, who is the co-founder of Kero, the Japanese tea importer and distributor based in Fukuoka, Japan, and New York. Zach joined us in episode 44 and talked about his love and passion for Japanese tea. If you haven't, I highly recommend listening to episode 44, since Zach is such a great speaker with a fantastic sense of humor. So now, four years later, Zach has lots of updates to share with us. So today we'll discuss his fascinating new book uh, titled Stories of Japanese Tea, The Visions, The Growers, and The Craft, which came out on May 24th, and what Zach offers at his new cafe and gallery in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and the latest Japanese tea trends in New York, and much, much more. But before we start, Spanish is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, which you will listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Zach Mangan. Hello, Zach. Welcome back to the show. Ah, uh, Kiko-san. Thank you. It's great to be back. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on again. Yeah, so uh, you have a lot to talk about today. So, uh, But first of all, uh, since our last conversation was a long time ago, so uh, so to refresh your memory of who you are, where are you from, and what did you eat when you grew up? Okay, my name is Zach Mangan. I was born in Pennsylvania, and I lived there till I was 12, and then moved to Minnesota, went to high school in Minnesota, and then went to college 
in Boston before moving to New York City, where I live now. And I grew up eating a fairly standard uh, American diet. You know, my mom and dad both cooked. And I think every night dinner um, was was something homemade. But we ate a lot of like traditional kind of like Italian American, um, you know, things like pasta, chicken cacciatore. My mom also, her side of the family was uh, Polish. Uh, so we, we had like goulash and you know, some types of kind of uh, more Polish style food. But by, by and large, it, it was a pretty traditional, um, traditional type of American cooking, which, um, yeah, that's, that's how I grew up eating. Mm, well, so obviously, you, your palates are nurtured by your parents' food, so that's great. And uh, so and you went to uh, uh, the college in Boston, which is Bunkley College of Music. So that's interesting. So, but you studied music, but somehow you are now one of the top tea merchants in America. So how did you get into Japanese tea? That's a great question. Yeah. So I, I went to school in, in Boston and I was there to study jazz performance, which was uh, my passion and what I, I really, you know, fully, you know, spent all my time and energy doing. And I actually think to kind of connect your last question to this one, I think that's one of the times where I really got exposed to different types of cuisine. And I was lucky to get to travel a little bit with my family when I was, when I was a bit younger. Uh, and, you know, that was maybe the first time, you know, if we went to Europe or we went south or we went somewhere with a different type of food culture than I was used to, I always enjoyed eating different types of food. But, um, yeah, in school uh, in Boston, I, you know, I met lots of people from all over the world and, you know, just was eating different types of cuisine, had sushi for the first time when I was 17 years old. So I had not had it before that. Um, and then it was actually during my travels uh, one summer when I was in Paris, I uh, was peripherally interested in tea, uh, specifically green tea. And I, I had bought some Japanese tea before, but I bought Shinsha which is the new spring harvest tea at a tea shop in Paris. And it really was such a powerful experience to try it. And it was something I always say was kind of nostalgic, which is unique because I'd never had it before, but I felt this sort of familiarity when I tried it. And that's really the thing that pushed me into like, you know, really, you know, it becoming more than a hobby or something I really was wanted to seek out more of and uh, become more familiar with. Mm, wow. Do you remember where the Shincha was from? I I would be lying if I said I remembered exactly. I have a <laughs> feeling just if I if I were if you put me on the spot, I would guess it was from Shizuoka, uh, just based on what I think I remember it looked like, but I can't remember exactly. I, I wish I did. Mm. It was an important tea. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And uh, so uh, you have an amazing story about how you ended up starting your own tea company in 2011, which you shared in episode 44. But for listeners who have not listened to it, can you tell us uh, how a cup of tea you served to Japanese strangers in New York changed your life? Yeah, that's uh, it's a pretty, uh, it's a foundational uh, experience for, for my life, for sure. I was at that time, uh, since moving to New York, had started working for a Japanese tea company because I, as I mentioned, I became so interested in it. I wanted to learn more. And I also, being a jazz musician, needed 
needed a job. Um, so during my time there, someone had brought me a gift of this, this tea that was not for sale in the store. It was just something they brought back from Fukuoka. And I remember opening it and right when I smelled it, I was like, wow, this is totally different than what we have here in the shop. So I brewed it and I was just blown away at how delicious it was. And I think I only had like a hundred gram bag. So I was sort of, you know, uh, I was, I was drinking it slowly. And, and one day these two gentlemen came in the shop, they were uh, visiting from Japan. Their English was, you know, was, um, it wasn't fluent, but they were great communicators and they just showed a real interest in, in, in both the store and myself. So I thought, well, now's the time I'll show them some hospitality. I brewed them the tea. And once I gave it to them, they were totally like, you know, they had such a strong response to it. They talked, they were talking to each other. And then they asked me, can we see the package or where the tea comes from? You know, could we'd like to, we'd like to see it. So I showed it to them and they started laughing and they're like, that's the tea that we drink in our office in Fukuoka. We know that farm. So they gave me their business cards and they said, this is too funny. If you ever come to Japan and you'd like to visit, we'd be happy to show you. And long story short, I decided to take a trip to Japan a year later and I reached out to them and they met me. Uh, I took the Shinkansen from Tokyo down to Fukuoka in Kyushu, and they met me at the train station. And it, it wasn't just the two gentlemen. They actually had a business, and they closed for the day, and all of the members of the business came and <laughs> greeted me, and each one had uh, you know, a gift, omiyage. So they all handed me a gift and introduced themselves and I was just sort of overwhelmed with like I felt like a dignitary like I was visiting from <laughs> you know like from from somewhere overseas and this they were just bringing me all these gifts and they drove me up to the farm and it was such a surreal moment because this gentleman walked over and they said yes this is the the gentleman who made the tea that you brewed for us in New York and then that experience of seeing the fields and getting a chance to just understand the difference in freshness of you know the tea that that is in the J japanese marketplace domestically that just totally changed things for me and it was after that trip that i really started to think more deeply about you know not only working professionally in tea but um, you know making it a career and also really wanting to connect with those farmers and bring their products into the states mm, wow serendipity <laughs> yes yeah, it was it was something that you absolutely I could not have planned it. And it was one of those moments where you just you can remember exactly a particular moment that changed your life, which, you know, you're lucky to get one. And, and you know, I've been lucky to have a few of them. And, and that's one of the biggest for sure. Mm, right. And also your generosity uh, brought to you on fortune. So that's something we should learn. Have to be generous. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, and then uh, so, what is the concept of kettle tea? That's your company, and what do you offer to whom? Right. So it started with a simple idea, which was that you know the the freshest and highest quality teas in Japan stay in the domestic marketplace. So the reason why it's kind of there's a com complicated, um, but more or less a lot of the products are made in you know the rural parts of japan and the style of business that's practiced there is is not you know particularly it's, it's very insular so a lot of the business that happens stays within the community and you know through sort of understanding spending time with the growers and starting to understand some of their 
you know, why they would be hesitant to work with uh, somebody outside of their community and also outside of Japan, I came up with a plan to, uh, you know, to to basically develop a business that looked more like a domestic Japanese business. So that meant having an office and staff in Japan, having, you know, following the same business practices that their other clients would, including having a fax machine, having, you know, being able to send money through the Japanese banking system and, you know, being able to field uh, inquiries by our staff in Japan in native Japanese. And all of those kind of elements made them less you know, uh, reluctant to begin to work with me. And it was sort of also like the practice of, um, you know, of taking the time to kind of consider what their needs were. It built a, a level of trust between us that I think they appreciated. So once that started, I was able to source these same teas that were going into the domestic marketplace, but bring them into the States. Uh, and initially I, I worked primarily with uh, chefs. So my thesis was nobody's going to listen to me if I say that these are the best Japanese teas or, you know, certainly not only in the States, but in Japan. It's I, I may have said this on the last show, but I always joke that it's like saying best slice of pizza in New York. It's like you can anybody can slap that on the front of their business and there's really no one to say if it's true or not. But when you have chefs uh, who, you know, are speaking highly of your products, it sort of helps uh, send the message that yes, the quality is high, and yes, it's it's something different that you can you know you can use their uh, you know their name to to kind of understand the value, uh, and then you know throughout the last few years we've built it into more of also in addition to wholesale to our retail company. So we do e-commerce, we have a few cafes, and it's really for me just uh, a kind of you know, uh, the ability to share how unique Japanese tea and Japanese culture is. Um, so, you know, I can get into more details, but that's the, kind of the high level of, of what we do at Kettle. Mm, right. And if our listeners wants to, um, how Zach got connected to super high-end chefs, that's another interesting part of last episode uh, 44. So you have to listen to it. But uh, yeah, so that's great. So you're, um, we're going to discuss your, interesting project in your business uh, in a moment. But first, let's talk about your wonderful new book titled Stories of Japanese Tea, The Visions, The Growers, and The Craft. So um, it is an extremely informative as well as a fun book, and I really enjoyed that. And it's full of your love and passion for Japanese tea culture. So, So what's the theme of the book and why did you write it? That's a great question. Thank you. And thank you for the kind words about the book. I also just want to say a quick thank you to Princeton Architectural Press, the publishers who were so gracious to help me publish the book. And, you know, we're, we're just great partners to get it out. Um, so the book was actually, con I conceived of the book prior to having an actual uh, book deal. So I, you know, my intent with the book and my intent with the business really is to always be pushing kind of the dialogue about tea and specifically Japanese tea forward. And one of the things that I think, you know, is really important is it's kind of twofold. Number one, educating the customers, but also sort of bringing the conversation around tea and around the quality of tea to a higher level. And I thought the best way to do this kind of following, you know, in the footsteps of wine was to really showcase the, the artisans and the growers who craft these products. So my initial thought was, well, I would like to do these interviews with the growers and take photos, portraits, photos that, you know, at uh, origin and, 
that would be the foundation for the book. So, you know, rather than me just saying, hey, I'm Zach Mang and I'm from Pennsylvania, let me tell you all about Japanese tea, I thought the more interesting route would be more of a being more of a conduit between these tea professionals in Japan and then kind of interpreting and, and, and parsing out the information that they provide in these interviews at the beginning of the chapter. So we go through many themes. We go through the different, you know, historical elements of tea. We look at the, the categories from, you know, sencha, hojicha, gyokuro, matcha. And each one of those chapters is anchored by an interview with somebody who not only is an expert in the field, but is a personal friend of ours and somebody that we source our products from. Um, so that's that's how it started. And, you know, it kind of grew in, in its scope to, to include a chapter on, you know, how to make cocktails, how to, you know, use tea with food, whether it's sweets or savory. And it was a kind of a celebration to be able to, um, you know, to work with people that we worked with already, chefs and mixologists. And then finally, there was a great chapter, which I was honored to interview Dr. Andrew Weil about kind of demystifying some of the health benefits of tea. So it's really just like, you know, for someone who's particularly interested in uh, tea, maybe professionally, I think it's a great resource. It's a book that, you know, I would have loved to have had when I was starting out. But I also feel like there's enough in the book that somebody who just has a peripheral interest, uh, maybe in tea or ceramics or, or Japan could could leaf through it and find something that, you know, they also could, could learn or, or just be entertained by. Mm, right. It's almost like, uh, you know, watching a documentary after reading the book, I, I feel like I met a lot of people who are supporting the industry. So Yeah. And w- one of my favorite things about this book is how many people have just said, I learned a lot, you know, like I, I and, and learning to me is like discovery and learning is, is one of the things I enjoy doing the most, whether it's about tea or music or science. I just I find like learning new information to be very, um, you know, rewarding. And probably the highest compliment was my dad, who I loved dearly, but is not a tea drinker, said, you know what, Zach, I, I had no idea. Tensha sounds so interesting. Do you sell Tensha? And I said, oh, yeah, dad, we have that. And he said, oh, I got to come into the store and finally do like a full tasting. And I just felt like if my dad, you know, who who is not particularly, in, you know, interested in Japanese tea now has an interest in it, then I'm, I think there's hope. Oh, <laughs> so wow. That's a I'm home glad run. I wrote the book. Yeah, exactly. Right. Wow. Okay. And uh, so, well, you just mentioned one of the topics in your book is the history of Japanese tea. So maybe you can uh, give us a quick overview of uh, Japanese tea history and how tea became such an important part of Japanese culture. Great. Yeah, it's a very interesting, you know, very interesting story. I'm not an expert on history, but it is something that I, you know, I spent a good deal of the book, um, you know, a lot of the time spent in the book was this researching this chapter. And to follow tea in Japan is is quite unique because it kind of, in a lot of ways, um, was brought in and, and, and grew in popularity simultaneously with Japan going through a strong period of its of developing its cultural identity. And I think uh, that's because that was really the point at which Japan and China started to have strong, you know, cultural exchange. So it's the same time that sort of the written languages were introduced in Japan and the kanji characters where there was a lot of introduction of, of religion, so through Buddhism and, and through primarily certain styles of Buddhism from China. And one of the elements that was brought back was tea, these tea seeds. Uh, and that was in about the early 800s. And one of the things about that 
um, that's so unique is that it wasn't really, you know, for, for many, for the early years, it was not like a beverage that was consumed like it is today in the sense that people drank it for relaxation or enjoyment. It was really more of almost like a stimulant or like a, a you know, a way to derive energy or, or, or almost treat yourself in a medicinal manner. So uh, as it grew, it really, like tea does, whether it goes to, you know, Taiwan or Korea or Russia or England, it really reflects the culture of the country in which it's in. And in Japan, you know, with the development of, you know, Zen Buddhism and sort of the development of the, the culture within Kyoto at that time, the capital, uh, it, it, tea really became this, this status symbol. And it was something that was really for, you know, the highest officials and for the high ranking, you know, uh, uh, aristocrats at the time. Uh, and that went through that phase. And then it sort of to rebound from that, which is so interesting, it kind of then took on this color of what we know now of the of the traditional Japanese tea ceremony through many different practitioners. Probably, you know, the you know the, well, several of them are famous, uh, but Sen no Rikyu, I would say, is probably the most well known. And that time period was very interesting for tea because that's when the formality of the tea ceremony was codified, the tamai, and from there, so much of I think even contemporary Japanese culture in the manners that people practice with each other, in the way that kaiseki cuisine, which was born from the tea room and has now gone on, you know, to be sort of the highest expression of seasonality in Japanese cuisine, that really grew from tea and ceramic culture as well. So I, I actually, you know, I, I feel like tea was a huge catalyst for so many of the developments of what we know now in arts and culture in Japan. So it's a fascinating thing. Um, I, there's authors and, and books that go into it on a much deeper level than my book, and I'd invite you to check those out. But we do cover some of, you know, some of the basics of history in, in the first chapter of the book. Mm, right. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that tea was used as stimulant because lots of shoguns and, you know, higher samurais used tea before going to war, <laughs> basically, right. and stay up. And also I heard the tea meetings, they call the tea meetings, as it's kind of political secret meetings. So it was a good, interesting cultural base for spending time together with someone important yeah, um, politically. Yeah. And a funny story is it became sort of there was this this like fever pitch to people having these these betting games where uh, they would come together and they would try to identify what was true tea, meaning tea that was from Tagano and Uji, like in the Kyoto area, versus tea that was grown from outside. And they would bet vast sums of money, like you know they would bring you know. I, I, thousands of dollars in and they would you know in a windfall either make or lose this vast sums of money and you know people were bringing really expensive ceramics from china and bedding them and it was just sort of like it was chaos and there was a moment <laughs> where the government was like this is nuts this needs to stop because people are you know they're they're losing their minds by this this sort of enjoyment of bedding like who can guess where the tea comes from and uh, it's funny because we're actually bringing back in Brooklyn, we're going to start to do, uh, obviously not with any form of betting, but these tea <laughs> games where you can, you can get together in a group and try and identify and see if you can, you can taste the difference in teas. And we give a little prize at the end, but it's, uh, that was an interesting part of Japanese history for sure. Mm, so that's the blind tasting war. Yeah. Yes. Right. 
Okay, I have to come over and then try your blind tasting. Oh, I'd love um, for you. I mean, you 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 have such a good palate, though. You'd probably be a bit of a ringer. So, well, <laughs> well, I'd still have you in, though. I'd love to see it. Well, maybe I shouldn't go because I don't want to review my actual lack of my palate. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then uh, the favorite tea outside Japan, obviously, is matcha. And you have a chapter for it in your book. So, and matcha is versatile and used to make many delicious products such as matcha latte or matcha ice cream. But what do you think is the essence of matcha that Japanese emperors and shoguns loved in, in your opinion? That's a great question. So I think one, like the, the less exciting answer of those two is it was really the only available tea at the time. So a lot of those that were partaking in it historically at that moment, like, this type of powdered tea was the very first uh, form of tea that was introduced to them. But I will say that the reason I think that it's kept its longevity, there's two reasons. So when people say, well, why is matcha only made in Japan? One interesting thing is that after it was introduced, Japan closed its borders again, and they were closed for a long period of time. And during that period, China actually stopped producing or severely limited the amount of powdered tea that they made. But the funny thing is Japan continued to develop a culture for powdered tea, and powdered tea is more or less what matcha is. So if you, if, when it reopened, like they were really the only, you know, the only country left that was still producing it. And not only they were producing it, they were developing it and refining it in the way that Japan does, that they had brought it to a whole new level. It was no longer this kind of bitter, you know, astringent medicinal blend that you would drink just to stay up all night to meditate. It became a more elegant beverage and it really grew alongside, you know, sado, the traditional Japanese tea ceremony. So if you if you look at it from that perspective, even till today, it's continued to develop in a way that's so different. If you look, you know, to the surrounding countries, if you look to Taiwan or China or Korea, they really don't have a culture of drinking powdered tea like matcha. And that's something I really thought was just such an interesting development. And if Japan had kept its borders open and loose leaf teas or brick teas like pu'er were brought in from China later, like perhaps matcha would have just been something that was talked about historically and not uh, something that's still so, you know, beloved and enjoyed today. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So, um, and also I think by taste itself, to me personally, there's an addictive nature because it's bitter and the bitterness makes you a uh, palate more sweet oriented so this like bitter and followed by sweetness and like back and forth and uh not to mention the caffeine is pretty addictive too so um, yeah it, it's a very you know it's a very full body tea it's something i think that if you haven't had it before it can be it can be really um like a, almost a, a hard to believe that something could taste like that because it has this rich umami, which is this kind of savory, full, you know, brothy character. It has a lot of fragrance, like bright grassiness, nuttiness, and then it can have some astringency or bitterness. So it's this really complex flavor. And then it is full of caffeine as well as uh, chemical L-theanine, which is um, strongly linked with kind of a sense of relaxation or well-being so i do believe that it has some psychoactive element that that causes you know people to to want to have it again and again and again and and you know it's 
for somebody who sells the product, we, we're not going to complain about that. <laughs> if people want to drink it again and again, that's good for us. Right. And not to mention, you know, it's the whole leaf that you eat, right? As you mm-hmm. drink, you are consuming the whole vitamins and minerals, everything. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and a funny thing is, so you talk about it has quite a lot of caffeine. If you were to take a pound of matcha and a pound of sencha. Sencha actually per pound generally has more caffeine in it. But the way that you consume matcha because it's, you know, it's it's a powder and you're whisking it and you're consuming the entire leaf into your body, you're actually you know, per serving, you're consuming more uh more caffeine. So it is uh, we do get a lot of people that that drink it specifically for kind of a, a a particular reason like you know for energy or for relaxation or specifically for health benefits because it just does provide it provides a, a broader spectrum of those chemicals because you consume the entire leaf mm, right okay and then uh so you also include in fascinating interviews in your book so maybe you could pick a, a grower and a producer or blender or whom you interviewed and tell us why they are so special oh that's that's a great question and actually i had a hard time thinking of which one i wanted to mention but i will tell a funny story that i told last week when i did the the first event um and all the growers and all the producers in it are people that I have very specific fond memories with. I have very specific, you know, stories I could tell. And also they all produce products that not only do I love and drink personally, but I sell them. So they're everybody in the book, you could come to Kettle and get their products. But there's one in particular, I was in Uji visiting with a, a very old um producer of, of Uji tea and the, the lead Chashi. Chashi is the tea blender and he's also the president of the company. So he is with, you know, for lack of a better term, he's like the godfather of tea in Uji and all the other farmers that we work with think of him as like, you know, he's the top of the top of the top. He's quite a, you know, a serious and stern, he's a friendly guy, but you know, the way that business is done in Uji and you know, it's it's a there's a lot of formalities to it. And one of the things I I loved in our meeting was prior to the meeting, um, he mentioned or his you know assistant said you know there just so you know we're happy to do the interview but there's no phone notes. And I had actually heard that before because I I know someone who had put his photo on their website and they asked him to take it down. So I was expecting okay no photos. And when we got to the interview they said. Again, like, just so you know, there will be no photo. And I was like, okay, they're very serious about this photo thing. It's not going to happen. So we go in and we sit, uh, you know, in his office and you sit on, you know, you sit like on a little Zabaton, like a little cushion. And, you know, we're sitting around this little hearth and he, they all bring us the matcha. And we start to ask questions and I can kind of see like, you know, the questions are landing. He's finding them interesting and he's talking and, and always, this is always a good sign if you're in a first or, you know, a, kind of a serious meeting if they bring a second tea so at some point in the middle of the meeting he said he you know he motioned to his assistant like bring more bring more tea so they brought sencha out and i felt like okay the meeting is going pretty well because they brought more tea so he's starting to laugh a little bit we're starting to get you know some more colorful responses so i'm feeling really good about this interview and at the end of it i i kind of see there might be some opening here to get a photo but i didn't want to ask him so i said 
I understand, of course, you know, there was no photos, uh, but maybe you can suggest something else. We can take like the tokonoma, which is like the little alcove with the flower and the scroll. Like, how about that? How about we take that for the book instead of your photo? And I could see him start to kind of mutter to himself like, oh, maybe, oh, wow. Okay, all right. all right, we could do one photo. So I saw my chance and I <laughs> moved him over right in front of the scroll. I snapped the three photos real quick and I said, thank you. And I put the little card in my pocket thinking like, I got to take this photo now. I got to take this back. And it's now that that portrait is in the book. And among, you know, his, his interview was so interesting. And of course it's condensed, but um, he gave so much great information that uh, I was so proud to be able to share that but also to get that photo was so meaningful because it kind of was a statement of like hey you know we've connected throughout this interview and he felt it was you know we had a great kind of dialogue and that was just I guess some little gift he gave to us so getting that photo in the book that's probably one of my favorite uh, favorite stories from from the interviews. Mm, interesting and I think it's very Kyoto style right you don't go straight not like Osaka or Tokyo and then no. they test like three steps and it's almost like, you know, if you are invited to their house in Kyoto, don't say yes the first time. You have to wait until like third time. And then oh. if you go in, you, you pass the test of being polite. So yeah, it's very like... true. And, you know, it's it's something that I've been lucky from the start to have, you know, both, uh, both certainly my wife who, who's from Japan and our staff and friends who have been able to help me you know, as they say, read the air to be able to understand, you know, just speak less, you know, pay attention to what's going on. And, you know, you're not going to, there's no certainty that things are always going to go the exact way you think or, or not. And, and, you know, there's also people certainly in Uji that have been from the start more gregarious and outgoing, but certainly he, I think, was very representative of an older school style of, uh, of business, you know, where, that's just just how things go and i'm and i get it i'm on i'm I'm doing business with them i'm in their you know house i'm on their terms and i've always just been like that's the way it goes we don't push too hard we just we try and if it happens it happens and if he didn't give me the photo you know i'm sure the the scroll would have looked really nice in the book too <laughs> right so it's a cultural lesson right that's it's Absolutely. not just tea it's not just a beverage it's everything so right and then um so after writing this amazing book, did you anything, did anything change? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, now I have a book. <laughs> so that was a big thing. That was kind of like, you know, the process of writing the book, I think. And what I learned, of course, the information I learned, I mean, as much as this is an education for those who are reading it, it was also personal education. So, you know, going through the process of, of asking the questions and spending time with them and compiling things, that was a big learning experience for myself. Uh, and just having it out there now, I feel like it's, for me, it's such a great thing to have to be able to like, it just sort of condenses so much of what I'm, you know, I've been working on or trying to explain, you know, over the last decade. And it's like, you know, however, it's 260 pages that you can just say here, this is it. You can read the story here. So it feels really nice to be able to have that and to be able to share that with people who, you know, might say, well, what is this all about? You can say, well, here's the book. And by the first chapter, they're like, oh, okay. I, 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 it's so clear to me now what it is that you're trying to, you know, trying to share. And above that, you know, to be able to, to highlight these producers and, and really that was the, the, the fundamental idea of the book was to share their stories and show 
you know, the, the work and the, you know, the expertise that they have. And I believe that that adds value to the products then because people can say, oh my gosh, I remember when I read about, you know, Tatehiro-san and how he makes sencha and shizuoka. And when I tasted his teas, it really brought a new sense of respect to that. So I think that's really important. Mm, right. Okay. And I'm sure uh, all the people who interviewed you interviewed in the book, they are kind of celebrating, um, you know, the tea culture thriving in outside of Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, okay. And uh, again, the title of Zach's new book is Stories of Japanese Tea, the Regions, the Growers, and the Craft, uh, published by Princeton Architectural Press. So, where can we find your book? Well, thankfully, the book is available in, you know, all markets. So from your, you know, here in New York, it's available in all the major bookstores. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, online, like Books A Million, Bookshop.com, IndieBound, Indigo, uh, Book Depository, which is an international um, site. But it's really, it's in, thankfully, in, in major markets um, and in most, like, local bookstores. So, yeah, and if they don't have it, most of those bookstores can um, can order it for you. So it's it's quite easy to get. So mm, yeah. great. Or you can come and you can get it from our website, kettle.co, K-E-T-T-L.co. We have it available there as well. Mm, okay. And uh, I really like the size of the book. It's beautiful, like, you know, tea color. And it's really, it fits in my hand. So you can carry it around when you want to learn more about tea or you can just carry it as a reading book uh, it's about uh, people's story too so yeah i highly recommend it all right so we'll take a quick break here and then when we come back we'll discuss zach's new cafe and gallery that he opened last year so please stay with us today's program is brought to you by corin a supplier of japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, actually, my apartment <laughs> uh, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, I'm your host, Kotema, and my guest today is Zach Mangan, who is the co-founder of Kero, the Japanese tea importer and distributor based in Fukuoka, Japan, and New York. Okay, so, uh, so you opened your flagship cafe in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, last year. So what do you offer there? And by the way, Greenpoint is becoming a really cool area recently. <laughs> yeah, we timed it right. That's for sure. It is. Um, yeah, so we have a, a new, it's about less than a year old. Uh, we call it kind of our flagship cafe because uh, we do, we can do everything here. So it's it's kind of an interesting space in that we do 
takeaway element, meaning you can just walk down the street, oh, you know, come up to the window, take a, a drink or a matcha soft serve to, to the park and just kind of make it part of your daily walk or you can enter in. And the reason I really wanted to have this space was, you know, having an online business and a wholesale business is, is, is wonderful. And it's, it's a real strong part of uh, our identity as, as, as a tea seller. But um, when it comes to the experience of tea and, um, you know, the, I guess the, the right word is just the immersive potential of tea. We really needed a space that people could come and see what it is that, um, you know, tea has to offer. So we have a mill that we brought from Kyoto, which mill, we can mill the matcha on a stone mill and you can try fresh milled matcha. Uh, we have a hojicha roaster, so we're able to roast hojicha and... Um, we, you know, we have sweets, we have a full line of, of sweets that, you know, are, are made by Japanese pastry chefs. So my wife actually designed also a parfait and you can sit at the counter and experience that, but there's just the world of tea and the fragrances, the, the colors, all of those things you can experience there. And that was something that was really important for me to have, um, for the company. So people can, can fall in love with it in the way that I did by, you know, by, by kind of experiencing it in all its different forms. Mm, right. And uh, so your flagship cafe also has a gallery space called Kettle Gallery. So what is the theme of the gallery? Yeah, that's uh, it's it's kind of a flexible space that we, you know, when we feature new um, collections of work, for example, my wife Minami is a ceramicist and she has her studio on site, actually on in, in the basement level of our store. So where I'm sitting right now, actually. So she she produces work here has a kiln, fires it. And then, for example, um, on the 18th and 19th of this month, June, we will feature her her work in the gallery space. So it's just a way for us to be able to share um, in a different venue, um, you know, some of, of the artisans' work that we work with outside of tea. And it's also flexible in that we could do host dinners there. We can show, you know, do educational programming. Um, so it's this extra space that we have outside of the store. Mm, right. I think it's really important to have events to actually effectively elevate the understanding tea as well as having fun together. So I'm so glad you have such a great flexible space. Yeah. And yeah, and then uh well uh by the way, who comes to your cafe and gallery? That's a great question. We were talking about this the other day, is that it's really interesting to see the different types of customers we get here. Um, and I kind of see that as like a, almost like when you have, you know, it's like a healthy business that you're drawing in different types of people. So, you know, we may have, you know, a group of young women that come specifically, they heard about the parfait. So they'll come in, they'll sit down, they'll order some tea, and they'll really just be there to, you know, enjoy the authentic kind of Japanese style sweets that we have. Or somebody who practices tea ceremony that their teacher said, oh, if you need matcha, you should go to, uh, to Kettle. And they come in and they maybe have some specific questions about where the matcha comes from. Or somebody who's like, hey, I'm, you know, I heard you have ceramics, so I'm here to look for teacups or for a Kyusu teapot. Or we also sell incense. So it's, there's just so many, I guess, types of customers that come. And I think the thing that I, I enjoy is a lot of them will come for one reason, and then be captivated by something else in the space. So they may come 
just to get a matcha latte to go, but then say, oh, you sell the matcha for the latte? Oh, maybe I'll take that home. And then they come back the next time. They're like, wow, now I'm hooked. So I need to get a, a whisk. Do you have a, a matcha whisk? And, you know, we show them, you know, it's, it's you can actually watch people kind of go through the process of becoming more familiar with Japanese tea. And, you know, we really want to meet people where they're at. So we don't want it to be an intimidating space or somewhere that you have to have a lot of experience in order to kind of appreciate what's going on. So I give a lot of credit to our staff who, you know, we, we really focus on making people feel welcome when they come in. And also, if you come in with questions, we can provide, you know, really, you know, high level answers. And we have a lot of information about origin and about how things you know, are processed, where they come from. So I think people really appreciate that whether you're coming in for the first time or if you've been drinking Japanese tea your whole life, there's something for you to, you know, to learn and to take home from the store. Mm, right. Yeah, I think uh, tea is a lifestyle, right? Because you have so many different kind of flavors and taste just out of tea leaves and you have so much uh, to choose from and also kind of we don't make things very often but just like you know you make a nice cup of coffee from grinding to the finished product you can have the same thing with tea and if you have a nice teapot or teacup there's something you look forward to every day so yes so I, I understand why people going back to your place hmm. yeah and, and you know and we live in such a you know, online and digital world that, you know, there's still room for analog things, you know, for things that you touch and for craft. And I, you've seen it, I'm sure there's, you know, the craft movement and the celebration of things that are made with your hands is, is, it's, it's, it's quite popular. And tea is just at the intersection of that. So it's something I think people really find uh, is a, is a great way to spend a small part of your day. Mm, Right. And small and important and punctuated part of the day. Mm -hmm. That's true. So uh, you also have an outlet in Manhattan called Kettle Bowery. So what do you offer there? Right. So if you were to take sort of and condense what we offer in Brooklyn into a much smaller space, almost like the front takeaway and uh, the back counter condensed into one space of our Brooklyn store, that's what we do in, in Bowery. So what I wanted to do in Bowery was sort of emulate some of the like back alley, smaller, you know, uh, bars that you have in Tokyo, but to do it with tea. And I wanted there to be the ability in the same way in Brooklyn that you could meet a customer wherever they are. So if someone comes in and says, oh, I just, great, I heard they have gelato and I want to get a hojicha latte. We do a beautiful gelato. We do a beautiful hojicha latte and they're on their way. Or you can sit at one of the four seats on the Bowery in this little stand and we'll make you competition gyokuro from Uji. You know, I mean, we can really give you a full experience and a very refined experience in kind of an unexpected location. So it's a very unique space. I don't think there's anything else like it in the, in the country in that it's, it's so small. You can't go into the store. It's only you can sit at the counter or you can take something away. But I think that the heart and the intention that we, we, you know, we take with, with making the products there is at the same level that you, we would, you know, if, if you came to Brooklyn. So there's no compromising. It's just a smaller space. Mm, cool. Yeah, I mean, we we can find good tea leaves, but if you don't know how to make it or actual good tea that was made well, it's hard to get really interested in it. So it's nice to have different out, outlets that you have. Um, hopefully, you can expand. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we have some plans. I, I I'm not at liberty to share ye quite yet, but hopefully, uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll chat again soon and I can, I can share some of our next steps of things that we're working on in the cafe space as well. Mm, okay. And uh, you mentioned earlier, but you, you have supplied high quality tea to restaurants and cafes. And what I read is your clients hold 40 mission stars in total. That's a lot of stars. So uh, since we spoke on the show uh, many years ago, has the demand for Japanese tea changed? And if so, who is drinking Japanese tea right now? Oh, that's, has it been that long? I can't believe that was six years ago. But yes, we have been continuing to, uh, you know, to, to support chefs and support restaurants and cafes and bringing the level of, of tea, you know, up. And I do think a lot has changed. I think that there, are, there is a higher demand. There's a more discerning customer now. I don't think it's yet where wine is. I don't think people are you know, quite as knowledgeable about uh, tea or Japanese tea um, in, the, in the bigger picture as they are about wine. But I think we're on the right path. And so much about working with chefs for me is to be able to reach you know, more customers and put tea into a context that's maybe a little bit um, unexpected. Because I find the strongest impression you can leave on someone is, is when you, you provide a great experience in an unexpected way. So I think, you know, through our partnerships with chefs, we've, we've done um, two so far of what we call our chef series, which is where we actually curate a tea with a chef um, and then we provide it to them uh, in a way that they can then, you know, provide it to their customers and they can also sell it in their restaurants. So we've done one with uh, Chef Nas from Sushi Nas. He was our very first partner and uh, it was it was great. It was great to see you know that uh, that kind of partnership between Sushi Nas and uh, and Kettle, and it was it was really fun you know to to get a chance to to share it and see you know people having a you know kind of a conversation about tea in a way that um, was closer to wine and and was I think more thoughtful and 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 that was something that was was. Uh, really, really exciting. And then uh, secondly, we did one with James Kent from the restaurant Crown Shy. And he's just a great guy, a personal lover of tea. And he was so into it and enjoyed, you know, having the teas. Uh, we, we did a fun special packaging. So all of those, you know, using or, or working with chefs and, and using their, um, you know, their microphone to talk about tea is, it's just, it's a great way to, to, to get the word out. And then also, you know, see how that affects the demand. Because once people try it, you know, they now they know like, wow, okay, that experience was way different than I expected and I want that again. And that's the hope is that those types of partnerships will, will bring more people into the world of tea. Mm, right. And it's really cool. You know, Sushi Nozu. So the, their team um, came to Japanese too. They're really cool, open-minded and also creative people. So oh, they're, they're amazing. amazing. Yeah. And they're, right. you know, they, they're, you know, passion for quality and for ingredients is just, you know, I mean, second to none. They're, they're a great, great team. Mm, and also uh, Chef James Kent, he's really well known for um, amazing restaurant and, you know, his skills, but it's totally non-Japanese. So I'm surprised that he was interested in, uh, you know, but I'm curious what kind of uh, the tasting menu for the tea tasting menu items did you offer? So with them, uh, we actually, with Nas, we do, and they actually offer a complete pairing to the meal with our teas, which is amazing. They do a full, you know, 
uh, flight. Uh, with James Kent, we just do some a la carte things. So he's personally, he drinks uh, our Uji Genmai Matcha every day. And it's something that we have this funny story during the pandemic. Uh, he, they, they ran out of it. And he told someone at the staff, oh, order the Genmai Matcha. And they ordered it from a different company unknowingly. And so James Kent gets it in the morning and he's drinking it. And he's like, oh no, Kettle, what's happened? They're, they've, they've really, the, the quality isn't there anymore. So he wrote me this email and he's like, Zach, it's James Kent. Like, I don't know what happened with that last batch you sent us, but it's just not the same. And, you know, uh, can you send me another one? And I'm like looking through the orders going, I don't think we sent them tea in the last couple months. So we were laughing because he was, you know, he, he really could tell the difference because he drinks it every day. So you know, of course, we sent our off our tea off to him, and then the next week he's like, "Okay, everything's good again. The world, the world <laughs> is, is makes sense." So he he just loves it personally, and it was fun to see it. You know, and, and the packaging was turned out really cool. We get their signature on the front, and it, it was great. Mm, interesting. Well, just for listeners who's ha- who are not familiar with Genmaicha, what's the reason James likes this so much? You know, I think that genmaicha, it's a blend of uh, green tea with uh, roasted brown rice. And I think that that flavor profile of the rice is very nostalgic uh, for a lot of people. It, it's something similar to like if you grew up eating kasha or certain types of cereal, it has this beautiful kind of like rich graininess to it. And it's it's one of the most popular and most uh, beloved Japanese teas uh, for Americans because it was introduced so so much earlier than many other styles. So in sushi restaurants specifically or Japanese restaurants like on the west coast and east coast it's often served so it's kind of a familiar tea for for a lot of people in the states mm, right I like the balance of uh, greenness of tea versus roasted uh, leaves and also the roasty uh, rice cracker mm-hmm. taste yes. yeah yeah like senbei right <laughs> okay and uh, so um, well what are your plans and dreams? Because you're a kind of person who does everything 100%, 120%. So I'm curious, what are you planning? Well, I would like to continue. I mean, I, I you know, I, I was talking to you before about a little bit about this is that, you know, you have 24 hours in the day and you also, you know, I, I like to have a life. I like there's things outside of, of my business that I enjoy. My wife and I like to hike, like to take photos. But in, in the sense of the business, I, I feel like I'm in that part of my life where I have the energy and, and, and the drive to do this. So I have a lot of big plans. I, I you know, for, first and foremost, I just want to continue to drive the conversation around producers and around quality and around telling the story of, you know, people that make these products. And the reason I, I care so deeply, number one, is because their stories are so interesting. They're such, you know, interesting people and kind people and hardworking people that I want to share more about their product. But also, I believe that in order to get to the next stage of tea, which is to have it thought about and talked about with the same reverence as, you know, whether it's craft cocktails or wine, uh, is to have that appreciation for who makes the product and, and attaching names and attaching the stories of the products to the teas is something I'm really passionate about. And I think that will continue to drive tea to the next level. And that's something that, you know, like uh, one of my heroes is Kermit Driscoll, or or excuse me, Kermit Lynch, sorry, Kermit Driscoll is a bass player. Kermit Lynch, (laughs) uh, who is uh, one of the pioneers of of really working directly with with French wine producers and bringing their products uh, into the States. And he spent so much time talking about 
who made the wine, not necessarily what the wine was. Like, yes, this is Cab Franc, but this is the person who made it. And same with George Howe, who's uh, like an luminary coffee importer from Boston. And he sort of did the same thing, which was spending so much time with the people and talking about the people. So that's my big project. But we have some plans for a cafe. We have some plans for another book. Uh, my wife is working really hard with the, helping with the ceramic side and, and doing her own work. So I really want to support that. So I, w- there's a lot planned and I'm just trying to keep it all organized. So we'll you know, keep an eye out and I hope you can follow along. You can, we have an Instagram, uh, it's just at Kettle Tea and uh, the website, we, we have a newsletter. So we're always sending updates on um, things we're doing in, in uh, and uh, I believe it's July or first week of July, we're doing a tea pairing dinner with June Wine Bar uh, with Diego Moya, who's a great chef there. And I'm really excited about that. It's, it's going to be a small affair. So I think it's going to sell out pretty quick, but uh, hopefully this will be on the air before the tickets go out. So people can check that out. So there's lots, lots, lots of stuff in the works. So I just have to stay calm and focused, <laughs> not, not drink too much caffeine. <laughs> it must be hard. So the kettle is K-E-T-T-L. So right. no, no E no at the e, end. Yep. Right. Correct. Right. Kettle with, without an E. Right. And also, I think, you know, uh, you talked about producers, um, you know, the growers, producers who process tea and also blenders. All those people are really important. But unfortunately, Japanese population is shrinking and it's not going to re- get reversed unless they have a huge immigration policy change. So mm-hmm. they need you, someone like you, who can introduce those stories, amazing stories and history and tradition to to the world. So good luck. Thank you. And thank All you right. so much for, I mean, this is, you know, having to be able to share the story with you and your listeners. Uh, you've been such a supporter for since the start. So I, I always appreciate, uh, you know, being on the show and getting to chat with you and, also, you know, just I also listen to your show, so I love hearing other people's stories, and that brings me a lot of uh, inspiration for how they're approaching things and what I can borrow from them. So I appreciate you doing and sharing all the things that you share as well. Oh, thank you so much. All right, so hopefully you can come back and give us more updates sometime in the near future. I'd love to anytime. You send yep. you send a message, I'll be there. Okay, great. All right, so thanks again for joining us today, Zach. Thank you. All right. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for short topics or guests, please contact us at japaneats at theheritageradionetwork.org or akikotema.com. Japaneats is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amens Benjamin, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Spanish is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.